Chapter 14b of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 14 Bringing Home the Bacon. Part B. Eddie Mahan. There is no question that the American game of football will go on for years to come. If the future football generals develop a better all-around man than Eddie Mahan, captain of the great Harvard team of 1915, whose playing brought not only victory to Harvard, but was accompanied by a great admiration throughout the football world, they may well congratulate themselves. From this peerless leader, whose playing was an inspiration to the men on his team, let us put on record, so that future heroes may also draw like inspiration from them, some of Mahan's own recollections of his playing days. I think the greatest game I ever played in was the Princeton game in 1915, because we never knew until the last minute that we had won the game, says the Crimson Star. There was always a chance of Princeton's beating us. The score was 10 to 6. I worked harder in that game than in any game I ever played. Frank Glick's defensive work was nothing short of marvelous. He is the football player I respect. He hit me so hard. The way I ran, it was seldom that anybody got a crack at me. I could see a clear space, and the first thing I knew, Glick would come from behind somewhere or somebody, and would hit me when I least expected it, and he usually hit me good and hard. It seemed sometimes that he came right out of the ground. I tell you, after he hit me a few times, he was the only man I was looking for. I did not care much about the rest of the team. One of the things that helped me most in my backfield play was Pooch Donovan's coaching. He practiced me in sprints my whole freshman year. He took a great interest in me. He speeded me up. I owe a great debt of gratitude to Pooch. I could always kick before I went to Harvard back in the old Andover days. I learned to kick by punting the ball all the afternoon instead of playing football all the time. I think that is the way men should learn to kick. The more I kicked, the better I seemed to get. Among the many trophies Eddie Mahan has received, he prizes as much as any the watch presented to him by the townspeople of Natick, his home town, his last year at Andover, after the football season closed. He was attending a football game at Natick between Natick High and Milton High. It was all a surprise to me, says Eddie. They called me out on the field and presented me with this watch, which is very handsomely inscribed. Well do I recall those wonderful days at Andover, and the games between Andover and Exeter. There is intense rivalry between these two schools. Many are the traditions at Andover, and some of the men who had preceded me, and some with whom I played, were Jack Curtis, Ralph Bloomer, Frank Hickey, Doc Hillebrand, and Jim Rogers. Then there was Trevor Hogg, who was captain of the Princeton 1916 team, Shelton, Red Braun, Bob Jones. The older crowd of football men made the game what it is at Andover. Lately they have had a much younger crowd. When I was at Andover, Johnny Kilpatrick, Henry Hobbs, Ham Andrews, Bob Foster, and Bob McKay had already left there and gone to college. It has been a great privilege for me to have played on different teams that have had strong players. I cannot say too much about Hardwick, Bradley, and Trumbull. 
Brickley was one of the hardest men for our opponents to bring down when he got the ball. He was a phenomenal kicker. I had also a lot of respect for Mal Logan, who played quarterback on my team in 1915. He weighed less than 150 pounds. He used to get into the interference in grand shape. He counted for something. He was a tough kid. He could stand all sorts of knocks, and he used to get them, too. When I was kicking, he warded off the big tackles as they came through. He was always there, and nobody could ever block a kick from his side. The harder they hit him, the stronger he came back every time. When I asked Mahan about fun in football, he said, We didn't seem to do much kidding. There was a sort of serious spirit. Houghton had such an influence over everybody, they were afraid to laugh before practice while waiting for Houghton, and after practice everybody was usually so tired there was not much fooling in the dressing room. But we got a lot of fun out of the game. Of Houghton's coaching methods and the Harvard system, Eddie has a few things to tell us that will be news to many football men. Houghton coaches a great deal by the use of photographs which are taken of us in practice, as well as regular games. He would get us all together and coach from the pictures, point out the poor work. Seldom were the good points shown. Nevertheless, he always gave credit to the man who got his opponent in the interference. Houghton used to say, Anyone can carry a ball through a bunch of dead men. Houghton is a good organizer. He has been the moving spirit at Cambridge, but by no means the whole Harvard coaching staff. The individual coaches work with him and with each other. Each one has control or supreme authority over his own department. The backfield coach has the picking of men for their positions. Harvard follows Charlie Daly's backfield play improved upon somewhat, of course, according to conditions. Each coach is considered an expert in his own line. No coach is considered an expert in all fields. This is the method at Harvard. Outside of Houghton, Bill Withington, Reggie Brown, and Leo Leary have been the most recent prominent coaches. The Harvard generalship has been the old Charlie Daly system. Reggie Brown has been a great strategist. Harvard line play came from Pot Graves of West Point. George Chadwick What George Chadwick, captain of Yale's winning team of 1902, gave of himself to Yale football has amply earned the thoroughly remarkable tributes constantly paid to this great Yale player. He was a most deceptive man with the ball. In the Princeton game, John DeWitt was the dangerous man on the Princeton team, feared most on account of his great kicking ability. DeWitt has always contended that Chadwick's team was the best Yale team he ever saw. He says, It was a better team than Gordon Brown's for the reason that they had a kicker, and Gordon Brown's team did not have a kicker. But this is only my opinion. Yale and Princeton men will not forget in a hurry the two wonderful runs for touchdowns, one from about the center of the field, that Chadwick made in 1902. I note, writes Chadwick, that there is a general impression that the opening in the line through which I went was large enough to accommodate an express train. As a matter of fact, the opening was hardly large enough for me to squeeze through. The play was not to make a large opening, and I certainly remember the sensation of being squeezed when going through the line. There were some amusing incidents in connection with that particular game that come back to me now. 
I remember that when going down on the train from New York to Princeton, I was very much amused at Mike Murphy's efforts to get Tom Shevlin worked up so he would play an extra good game. Mike kept telling Tom what a good man Davis was and how the latter was going to put it all over him. Tom clenched his fists, put on a silly grin, and almost wept. It really did me a lot of good, as it helped to keep my mind off the game. When it did come to the game, his first big game, Shevlin certainly played wonderful football. I had been ill for about a week and a half before this game, and really had not played in practice for two or three weeks. Mike was rather afraid of my condition, so he told me to be the last man always to get up before the ball was put in play. I carefully followed his advice, and as a result a lot of my friends in the stand kept thinking that I had been hurt. Toward the end of the game we were down about on Princeton's 40-yard line. It was the third down, and the probabilities were that we would not gain the distance, so I decided to have Bowman try for a drop kick. I happened to glance over at the sideline, and there was old Mike Murphy making strenuous motions with his foot. The umpire, Dashiell, saw him too, and put him off the sidelines for signaling. I remember being strongly angry at the time, because I was not looking at the sidelines for any signals, and had decided on a drop kick anyhow. In my day, it was still the policy to work the men to death, to drill them to endure long hours of practice scrimmage. About two weeks before the Princeton game, in my senior year, we were in a slump. We had a long, miserable Monday's practice. A lot of the old coaches insisted that football must be knocked into the men by hard work, but it seemed to me that the men knew a lot of football. They were fundamentally good, and what they really needed was condition to enable them to show their football knowledge. It is needless to say that I was influenced greatly in this by Mike Murphy, and his knowledge of men and conditioning them. Joe Swan, the field coach, and Walter Camp were in accord, so we turned down the advice of a lot of the older coaches, and gave the varsity only about five minutes scrimmage during the week and a half preceding the Princeton game, with the exception of the Bucknell game the Saturday before. During the week before the Princeton and Harvard games, we went up to Ardsley and had no practice for three days. There was a five-minute scrimmage on Thursday. This was an unusual proceeding, but it was so intensely hot the day of the Princeton game, and we all lost so much weight, something unusual had to be done. The team played well in the Princeton game, but it was simply a coming team then. In the Harvard game, which we won 23-0, it seemed to me we were at the top of our form. I think the whole incident was a lesson to us at New Haven of the great value of condition to men who know a great deal of football. I know from my own experience, during the three preceding years, that it had been too little thought of. The great cry had too often been, we must drum football into them, no matter what their physical condition. After the terribly exhausting game at Princeton, which we won 12-5, to DeWitt Cochran invited the team to go to his place at Ardsley and recuperate. It really was our salvation, and I have always been most grateful to Mr. and Mrs. Cochran for so generously giving up their house completely to a mob of youngsters. We spent three delightful days, almost forgot football entirely, ate ravenously, and slept like tops. Big Eddie Glass was a wonderful help in interference. I used to play left half and Eddie right guard. On plays where I would take the ball around the end or skirting tackle, 
Eddie would either run in the interference or break through the line and meet me some yards behind. We had a great pulling and hauling team that year, and the greatest puller and hauler was Eddie Glass. Perry Hale, who played fullback my sophomore year, was a great interferer. He was big and strong and fast. On a straight buck-through tackle, when he would be behind me, if there was not a hole in the proper place, he would whirl me all the way round and shoot me through a hole somewhere else. It would, of course, act as an impromptu delayed play. In one game, I remember making a forty-yard run to a touchdown on such a maneuver. Arthur Poe There never was as much real football ability concealed in a small package as there was in that great player, Arthur Poe. He was always using his head, following the ball, strong in emergency. He was endowed with a wonderful personality, and a man who always got a lot of fun out of the game and made fun for others, but yet was on the job every minute. He always inspired his teammates to play a little harder. Rather than write anything more about this great player, let us read with him the part he so ably played in some of Princeton's football games. The story of my run in 1898 is very simple. Yale tried a mass play on Doc Hillebrand, which as usual was very unsuccessful in that quarter. He broke through and tackled the man with the ball. While the Yale men were trying to push him forward, I grabbed the ball from his arms and had a clear field and about ten yards start for the goal line. I don't believe I was ever happier in my life than on this day when I made the Princeton team and scored this touchdown against Yale. In the second half, McBride tried a center drive on Booth and Edwards. The line held and I rushed in and grabbed the ball, but before I got very far, the referee blew his whistle and after I had run across the goal line, I realized that the touchdown was not going to be allowed. Lou Palmer and I were tried at end simply to endeavor to provide a defense against the return runs of DeSalis on punts. He, by the way, was the greatest open field runner I have ever seen. My senior year started auspiciously, and the prospects for a victorious eleven appeared especially bright, as only two of our regular players of the year before had graduated. The second hard game was against Columbia, coached by Foster Sanford, who had a wealth of material drawn from the four corners of the earth. In the latter part of the game, my opponent, by way of showing his disapproval of my features, attempted to change them, but was immediately assisted to the ground by my running mate, and was undergoing an unpleasant few moments, when Sanford, reinforced by several dozen substitutes, ran to his rescue and bestowed some unkind compliments on different parts of my pal's anatomy. With the arrival of Burr McIntosh and several old grads, however, we were released from their clutches, and the game proceeded. After the Cornell game, the Yale game was close at hand. We were confident of our ability to win, though we expected a bitter hard struggle, in which we were not disappointed. Through a well-developed interference on an end run, Ryder was sent around the end for several long gains, resulting in a touchdown, but Yale retaliated by blocking a kick and falling on the ball for a touchdown. Sharp, a few minutes later, kicked a beautiful goal, so that the score was ten to six in Yale's favor. The wind was blowing a gale all through the first half, and as Yale had the wind at their backs, we were forced to play a rushing game, but shortly after the second half began, the wind died down considerably, so that McBride's long, low kicks were not effective to any great extent.
Yale was on the defensive, and we were unable to break through for the coveted touchdown, though we were able to gain ground consistently for long advances. In the shadow of their goal line, Yale held us mainly through the wonderful defensive playing of McBride. I never saw a finer play of backing up the rush line than that of McBride during the second half. So strenuous was the play that eight substitutions had been made on our team, but with less than five minutes to play, we started a furious drive for the goal line from the middle of the field, and with McClave, Mattis, and Lanthrop carrying the ball, we went to Yale's 25-yard line in quick time. With only about a minute to play, it was decided to try a goal from the field. I was selected as the one to make the attempt. I was standing on the 34-yard line, about 10 yards to the left of center, when I kicked. The ball started straight for the far goal post, but apparently was deflected by air currents and curved in not more than a yard from the post. I turned to the referee, saw his arms raised, and heard him say goal, and then everything broke loose. I saw members of the team turning somersaults, and all I remember after that was being seized by a crowd of alumni who rushed out upon the field, and hearing my brother Ned shout, You damned lucky kid, you have licked them again. I kicked the ball with my instep, having learned this from Charlie Young of Cornell, who was then at Princeton Seminary and was playing on the scrub team. The reason I did this was because Lou Palmer and myself wore light running shoes with light toes, not kicking shoes at all. After the crowd had been cleared off the field, there were only 29 seconds left to play, and after Yale had kicked off, we held the ball without risking a play until the whistle blew, when I started full speed for the gate, followed by Bert Wheeler. I recall knocking down several men as we were bursting through and making our way to the bus. It was the first, last, and only goal from the field I ever attempted, and the most plausible explanation for its success was probably predestination. Arthur Poe was a big factor in football, even when he wasn't running or kicking Yale down to defeat. Bill Church's roughness in my freshman year had the scrub bluffed, continues Arthur, when Lou Palmer volunteered to play halfback and take care of Bill on punts, Bill was surprised on the first kick he attempted to block to feel Lou's fist on his jaw and immediately shouted, I like you for that, you damn freshman. It was the first accident that attracted attention to Lou. Palmer was one of the gamest men, and he won a varsity place by the hardest kind of work. Well do I recall the indignation meeting of the scrub to talk over plans of curbing Johnny Baird and Fred Smith in their endeavor to kill the scrub. John DeWitt Big John DeWitt was the man who brought home the Yale bacon for the Tigers in 1903. To be exact, he not only carried, but also kicked it home. Two surprise parties by a single player in so hard a game are rare indeed. Whenever I think of DeWitt, I think of his great power of leadership. He was an ideal captain. He thought things out for himself. He was the spirit of his team. This great Princeton captain was one of the most versatile football men known to fame. Playing so remarkably in the guard position, he also did the kicking for his team and was a great power in running with the ball. DeWitt thought things out almost instantly and took advantage of every possible point. The picture on the opposite page illustrates wonderfully how well he exerted and extended himself. This man put his whole soul into his work and was never found wanting.
His achievements will hold a conspicuous place in football history. Nothing got by John DeWitt. DeWitt's team in 1903 was the first to bring victory over Yale to Princeton since 1899. On that day, John DeWitt scored a touchdown and kicked a placement goal, which will long be remembered. Let us go back and play a part of that game over with John himself. Whenever I think of football, my recollections go back to the Yale game of 1903, says DeWitt. My most vivid recollections are of my loyal teammates, whose wonderful spirit and good fellowship meant so much to the success of that eleven. Without their combined effort, Princeton could not have won that day. We had a fine optimistic spirit before the game, and the fact that Jim Hogan scored a touchdown for Yale in the first part of the game seemed to put us on our mettle, and we came back with the spirit that I have always been proud of. Hogan was almost irresistible. You could hardly stop him when he had the ball. He scored between Harold Short and myself, and jammed through for about twelve yards to a touchdown. If you tackled Jim Hogan head-on, he would pull you right over backwards. He was the strongest tackle I ever saw. He seemed to have overpowering strength in his legs. He was a regular player. He never gave up until the whistle blew, but after the Princeton team got its scoring machine at work, the Princeton line outplayed the Yale line. I think Yale had as good a team as we had, if not better, that day. The personnel of the team was far superior to ours, but we had our spirit in the game. We were going through Yale to beat the band the last part of the game. DeWitt, describing the run that made him famous, says, Towards the end of the first half, with the score 6-0 to zero against Princeton, Yale was rushing us down the field. Roraback, the Yale center, was not able to pass the ball the full distance back for the punter. Rockwell took the ball from quarterback position and passed it to Mitchell, the fullback. On this particular play, our whole line went through on the Yale kick formation. No written account that I have ever seen has accurately described just what happened. Ralph Davis was the first man through, and he blocked Mitchell's kick. Ridge Hart, who was coming along behind him, kicked the loose ball forward, and the oval was about 15 to 20 yards from where it started. I was coming through all the time. As the bouncing ball went behind Mitchell, it bobbed up right in front of me. I probably broke all rules of football by picking it up, but the chances looked good, and I took advantage of them. I really was wondering then whether to pick it up or fall on it, but figured that it was harder to fall on it than to pick it up so I put on all the steam I had and started for the goal. Howard Henry was right behind me until I got near the goal post. After I had kicked the goal, the score was 6-6. Six to six. Never can I forget the fierce playing on the part of both teams that now took place. Shortly after this, in the second half, I punted down into Yale's territory. Mitchell fumbled and Ralph Davis fell on the ball on the 30-yard line. We tried to gain but could not. Bowman fell on the ball after the ensuing kick, which was blocked. It had rolled to the five-yard line. Yale tried to gain once, then Bowman went back to kick. I can never pay enough tribute to Vetterline, to the rare judgment that he displayed at this point in the game. When he caught that punt and healed it, he used fine judgment. But for his good headwork, we never would have won that game. I kicked my goal from the field from the 43-yard line. 
As Ralph Davis was holding the ball before I kicked it, the Yale players, who were standing ten yards away, were not trying to make it any the easier for us. I remember in particular Tom Shevlin was kidding Ralph Davis, who replied, Well, Tom, you might as well give it to us now. The score is going to be eleven to six. And just then what Davis had said came through. If anyone thinks that my entire football experience was a bed of roses, I want to assure him that it was not. I experienced the sadness of injury and of not making the team. The first day I lined up, I broke three bones in one hand. Three weeks later, after they had healed, I broke the bones in my other hand and so patiently waited until the following year to make the team. The next year I went through the bitter experience of defeat, and we were beaten good and plenty by Yale. Defeat came again in 1902. It was in that year that I met, as my opponent, the hardest man I ever played against, Eddie Glass. The Yale team came at me pretty hard the first fifteen minutes. Glass especially crashed into me. He was warned three times by Dashiell in the opening part of the game for strenuous work. Glass was a rough, hard player, but he was not an unfair player at that. I always liked good, rough football. He played the game for all it was worth and was a Gibraltar to the Yale team. Now that my playing days are over, I think there is one thing that young fellows never realize until they are through playing, that they might have helped more that they might have given a few extra minutes to perfect a play. The thing that has always appealed to me most in football is to think of what might have been done by a little extra effort. It is very seldom you see a man come off the field absolutely used up. I have never seen but one or two cases where a man had to be helped to the dressing room. I have always thought such a man did not give as much as he should. We're all guilty of this offense." A little extra punch might have made a touchdown. Titchener of the University of Georgia tells the following. In a Tech-Georgia game, a peculiar thing happened. One of the goal lines was about seven yards from the fence, which was twelve feet high and perfectly smooth. Tech had worked the ball down to within about three yards of Georgia's goal near the fence. Here the defense of the red and black stiffened, and, taking the ball on downs, Ted Sullivan immediately dropped back for a kick. The pass was none too good, and he swung his foot into the ball, which struck the crossbar, bounded high up in the air, over the fence, behind the goalpost. Then began the mighty wall-scaling struggle to get over the fence and secure the coveted ball. As fast as one team would try to boost each other over, their opponents would pull them down. This contest continued for fully five minutes, while the crowd roared with delight. In the meantime, George Butler, the referee, took advantage of the situation, and, with the assistance of several spectators, was boosted over the fence where he waited for some player to come and fall on the ball, which was fairly hidden in a ditch covered over with branches. Butler tells to this day of the amusing sight, as he beheld first one pair of hands grasping the top of the fence. One hand would loosen, then the other, then another set of hands would appear. Heads were bobbing up and down and disappearing one after the other. The crowd now became interested and showed their partiality, and with the assistance of some of the spectators, a tech player made his way over the fence and began to search for the ball, closely followed by a Georgia player. They rushed around frantically looking for the ball. Then Red Wilson joined in the search and quickly located it in the ditch. 
soon had it safely in his arms, and Tech scored a touchdown. This was probably the only touchdown play in the history of the game, which none of the spectators saw, and which only the referee and two other players saw at the time the player touched the ball down. That Charlie Brickley was in the way of bringing home the bacon to Harvard is well known to all. There have been very few players who were as reliable as this star. It was in his senior year that he was captain of the team, and when the announcement came at the start of the football season that Brickley had been operated upon for appendicitis, the football world extended to him its deepest sympathy. During his illness, he yearned to get out in time to play against Yale. This all came true. The applause which greeted him when Houghton sent this great player into the game, with the doctor's approval, must have impressed him that one and all were glad to see him get into the game. Let us hear what Brickley has to say about playing the game. I have often been asked how I felt when attempting a drop kick in a close game before a large crowd. During my first year I was a little nervous, but after that it didn't bother me any more than if I were eating lunch. Constant practice for years gave me the feeling that I could kick the ball over every time I tried. If I was successful, those who have seen me play are the best judges. Confidence is a necessity in drop kicking. The three hardest games I ever played were the Dartmouth 3-0 game in 1912 and Princeton 3-0 in 1913 and the Yale 15-5 game of the same year. The hardest field goal I ever had to kick was against Princeton in the mud in 1913. The most finished player in all-around play I ever came across is Tack Hardwick. He could go through a game or afternoon's practice and perform every fundamental function of the game in perfect fashion. The most interesting and remarkable player I ever came across was Eddie Mahan. He could do everything on the football field. He was so versatile that no real defense could be built against him. He had a wonderful intuitive sense and always did just the right thing at the right time. End of chapter 14b